0: Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Capitalize for Kids podcast. In this week's episode, we interview Deb Gillis, the president and CEO of the CAMH Foundation. The Center for Addiction and Mental Health, more commonly known as CAMH, is a globally recognized leader in the field of mental health research and our nation's largest subject teaching hospital. I have to admit that I was pretty intimidated coming into this conversation with Deb. Uh, This was the first episode that we recorded for season three. So I had not done a a podcast interview in nearly two years. Uh, And this was the first time that we had recorded a podcast virtually. Add this to the fact that Deb is a super accomplished powerhouse of a woman uh, whose journey I really wanted to do justice. But by the end of my conversation with Deb, I came to realize that her impressive yet seemingly disparate career path from working in politics and advising on the Meech Lake and Charlottetown Accords to later taking on the role as Global CEO for Catalyst, a nonprofit uh, that accelerates the advancement of women at work, uh, is a career path that is rooted in social change. Something that uh, most of us, if not all, uh, at the very least the listeners of this podcast uh, can get behind uh, and probably aspire to as well. Uh, So I think that you'll get a real kick out of this conversation with Deb. Uh, Anyway, without any more blabbing from my end, here is my conversation with Deb Gillis.
1: I grew up on a gravel road. Um, As a young person, until I went to high school, the house that we lived in had No central heating. My mother cooked on a stove that was um, heated by wood. Uh, We had no bathtub or shower in our house. Um, And I often like to say that there's kind of no direct line from, you know, where I grew up to the opportunities that I've had um, leading uh, really important organizations Living and working in New York City and Manhattan uh, to the work that I'm doing today at CAMH Foundation, so uh, it, it's been a journey and one that I'm I'm very fortunate to have to have had in my life.
0: Well, no, no doubt. I mean, I think the best stories are often ones that have a bit of a circuitous path, so to speak. Um, I just read in, in my book club where uh, we read the book Originals by by Adam Grant which kind of speaks to that and and how, how much you benefit from, you know, trying different things and coming from, um, you know, a different mindset and and developing divergent thought and, and all those things come from a a very diverse background and path. And given your work in promoting that type of diversity and, and, and inclusion, I think that it's helpful to have come from a gravel road, as, as you said, and uh, in Cape, in Cape Breton, and then, you know, coming all the way and, uh, you know to Toronto and Manhattan, and bringing some of those those values that you've been instilled um, from, you know, small town in, in the on the on the coast, uh, where people tend to be. By the way, I, I love the the how how proud most of my friends or all my friends are from the East Coast, especially the ones from the Cape. They love telling me that they're from the Cape, and they're always cut from a similar cloth of just good, kind of down to earth, um, you know, great people. So um, it's nice when we can. And, I, and I'd like to get your thoughts on this, like, you know, how it was to, to compete with the big city when you when you have that as your backdrop.
1: Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question. When um, I did the first two years of my undergrad at St. Francis Xavier um, in Anticone, Nova Scotia, I now serve on the board of governors of St. Effects. And after leaving, Act-X, I went to York and, you know, I really at that time, I think I'd gone back to Toronto once. I had maybe gone to Halifax once or twice in during my whole high school, years in high school. So it was a big transition to one, go to Toronto, and two, to find myself in this very large campus. Um, and it was probably the first time where I really experienced some self-doubt about my abilities and could I compete and was my, had my high school education prepared me in the same way that, uh, you know, my peers who had gone to big city schools, had how they had been prepared. Um, and lessons, I guess, for that in me, for me, as I went through my career of part of that tape that plays in all of our minds of whether we're good enough or prepared enough, um, whether we deserve the opportunities um, that might present themselves to us. and and that was one of the first times for me. I was really nervous um, in making that transition and uh, and it all turned out fine, but uh, important lessons to have confidence in ourselves. and 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 as you say to, To really remain grounded in values, what you learned, um, the important sense of community, of giving back. I mean, all of those things of hard work, of caring for others, um, you know, that I learned from the example of my parents and the community that I grew up in have really served me well and, and in many ways have been core to all of the things that I've done throughout my career
0: there's there's so much that you said there that I want to tap into because I love all of it but the first piece being that that kind of I guess now people refer to it as almost like imposter syndrome yeah right so you're 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 having to deal with that when you when you get here and you mentioned kind of having the confidence how did you how do you overcome that and 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 I'm if you can be as tactical as you as you possibly can in terms of what maybe maybe you had a diary maybe i don't know what you had or what you (laughs) did but how you came over that and how you how you pushed forward and because you you obviously accomplished a ton and how you did that
1: yeah you know i would say that um I remember particularly a conversation with one of my professors uh, when I first arrived at York, um, talking to me about you know how I'd done on a particular or how I was performing in a particular class, um, and so that again was an example of where um, the confidence came really from what other people saw and brought to my attention, and that. Both mentorship and sponsorship um, became a kind of constant thread through my time um, post-university and certainly going throughout my career. People who saw something uh, took a chance on me, gave me an opportunity. I often say they instilled confidence in me before I had confidence in myself. And that became really critical to a lot of things that I was able to do and had the opportunity to do. Because they, they believed in me. So that was really critical. Um, I'm not sure that uh, how things would have turned out quite the same way for me in lots of different respects if I hadn't had those people in my corner um, who really cared enough to nurture and encourage me to take chances or to move into different opportunities.
0: And how important of the, of those mentors, because this is something that I spent a lot of time thinking about. And, and I know it's a, it's a big narrative right now, obviously, um, you know, minorities, uh, whether it's whatever minority or, 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 um, group that you're coming from is having representation, um, from a, a in, in senior levels to have that mentorship and, and to find a mentor that that looks like you that resembles you that you can relate to and for you was that was that something that you acknowledged as well at that time or was it just whoever was there who believed in you and and because I, I would imagine that it's probably tough to find somebody from you know a small town maybe not but you know your area in, in the cape who's who's also a woman and who's also kind of leading so I would I, I'm curious to kind of hear your thoughts on that
1: Yeah, you know, I when I was young, um, certainly in high school or even in university, I wasn't and didn't have those kinds of uh, role models or mentors um, who looked like me who grew up in the same place that I did. I did develop them and I found them as I went through my career. So, for example, one. Um, the members of the CAMH Foundation board, is Annette for sure? And who is one of the most successful women business leaders in the country and also grew up on a farm in Cape Breton. And so here we are these many years later, um, where, uh, you know, I'm the CEO of the CAMH Foundation, and she's one of uh, the members of our board of directors. So I found them over time, but not initially. And you're absolutely right. I, th- I think that Um, that question that you're posing is really what so many people have experienced, which is you can't be what you can't see. And really having those visible role models where you look up and look across an organization and say, if this person can achieve um, this particular role, then then that's open and available to me. Um, Finding those visible role models and then finding the mentors and sponsors, really importantly, the sponsors uh, that help you um, navigate through what are often situations that you might not have been exposed to previously is really important. I will say I first probably really understood Um, and felt the power of those role models when I was a candidate for... um, I was running for office for the Nova Scotia legislature. And uh, to this day, I tell stories of the young girls I met during that time. Yeah, so I was out canvassing one day, knocked on a door, and a mother came to the door with her young daughter. And the mother explained why I was there. And the little girl looked up to me and said, I thought only boys did that. And it was, I mean, that moment just stayed with me and, of course, struck me so much because I knew that by doing, uh, by being in that role and by being there that day, I changed that little girl's perception of what was possible for her. And so that Lack of role models and someone really painting a picture to show us what's possible is particularly true for underrepresented populations in workplaces, whether it's from the BIPOC community, whether uh, it's based on sexual orientation or identity, et cetera, for women, of course, um, without those visible role models that say it is possible, it's really challenging. And so, again, that's why the mentors and sponsors become so important. They can do everything from helping you understand the unwritten rules of an organization to being the person who lends their credibility to you by saying, hey, I know Evan and I've worked with him and he's ready for this opportunity and I'm going to bat for him. And because I believe in him, the rest of you around this decision-making table should believe in him too and what he can do. So it's exceptionally powerful and I have benefited enormously throughout my entire career from both men and women who have played that role for me. And it's why I really try um As much as I possibly can when someone reaches out and says, hey, can I spend 20 minutes with you over coffee to get some advice that I I almost uh, I always try to say yes. Much to uh, the sometimes annoyance of my EA who says you say yes too many times to meeting requests. But I think that's the responsibility to pay it forward for others just as um, as they've done for me. 100%,
0: 100%, and I think it's such a fantastic point, recognizing that a lot of careers are made on the backs of, of people, you know, lending their credibility to them, um, on the shoulders of giants, so to speak, and yeah. and having someone that you can feel vulnerable, vulnerable enough to build a relationship with to get that is, is huge. Um, two, two things I wanted to uh, ask you about, like I said, um, I'm not smart, so I ask a lot of dumb questions, But first one, BIPOC, you mentioned, would you mind clarifying for our listeners what BIPOC means?
1: Of course, black, indigenous and people of color.
0: Right. Perfect. Thank you. And then you mentioned that you're the the CEO of CAMH Foundation. What does the CEO of a foundation of of a large hospital like CAMH, what what does that person do? (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, I get to do interesting conversations like this, of course. Um, you know, the, the primary responsibility, we are the hospital's foundation. And so we are the philanthropic arm of the hospital. And, and at its core, our responsibility is to inspire philanthropic support to help the hospital do the incredible work that it does. That often means raising funds to support research, um, innovation, the discovery of new treatments uh, for those who are facing mental illnesses and addictions. It also means um, doing things like raising awareness and running campaigns that help bust stigma. So the Chem Foundation has played a really important role over many years in supporting the mental health movement by putting forward campaigns and messages that have helped to to really, as I said, bust the stigma that continues to exist around mental health. It's certainly changed um, significantly, but there's lots of work to do. And so on any given day, I am uh, switching from conversations like this to meeting with individuals or corporations to talk to them about the work the hospitals to encourage them to support us. Um, And, you know, I built on some of the lessons that I learned when I was CEO of Catalyst. And I've really also tried to foster um, a conversation amongst business leaders in the country of being open and visible and talking about mental health um, so that there is a climate and culture within organizations that make it easier for employees to come forward and talk about what they're experiencing. So we've tried to do those kinds of things, both in in releasing a playbook for business leaders uh, related to mental health. And of course, I've also drawn on my uh, Catalyst experience in creating a new women's giving circle that focuses on women's mental health and the advancement of women's
0: I, I, I want to dive into the CAMH piece because there's so much that we can learn from, you know, Canada's leading mental health hospital organization. I mean, there's there's a ton there. Uh, but first, I I, I do want to touch on Catalyst and the work you you did with that organization because you really moved the needle for them in in a pretty meaningful way. Uh, and and you you obviously ran the, the global operations as the CEO for for a number of years and. Maybe if you can provide a bit of uh, uh, an update, or just a, a bit of background on on what Catalyst does, because uh, I think it's a phenomenal organization. Uh, that would be kind of helpful for for our viewers or our listeners, I suppose. Um,
1: yeah, for those of you who don't know Catalyst, um, Catalyst is an organization that was founded in the early 1960s. s, um, and really think about it, the early days of the women's movement, um, and it was. Found- simple principle which was um we needed more women in the workplace um to contribute to organizations and companies and etc and and in many ways that, that has remained the, the pillar of everything catalyst has done it is a view that any organization is going to be better and stronger and make better decisions and have better results if the full range of talent available in the talent force is has a fair and equal opportunity to have successful careers and to advance. And so Catalyst works with organizations providing uh, research studies, training, best practices um, to engage organizations in creating more inclusive workplace cultures um, that make, it, as I said, make it possible for everyone to contribute fully during the time that I was at Catalyst, um, part of what we did was expand uh, globally, opening offices in India and Japan, Australia, um, uh, and, uh, and just taking that mission and message um, really around the world that there is uh, strength and diversity and that that organizations that were not creating inclusive workplace cultures, creating environments where where women and underrepresented minorities could be successful, were missing out on an important uh, business opportunity.
0: And was this predominantly education-based? Was it pushing forward policy? Were you going and doing consulting work at organizations? Uh, what levers would you would you all push on or pull on? Sorry.
1: Yeah, a mix of all of those things. Um, certainly, we did strategy work with organizations um, that often, um, particularly in the early days, involved going to to companies and doing an assessment of issues that might exist um, for women, what the barriers might be, looking at data. Um, Catalyst very much speaks the language of business. It's very much based on data and facts and analysis because there was a, an understanding in the early days that in order to influence the decisions of business leaders, you needed to speak the language of business. And so using the data, developing a strategy, identifying um, what tactics or, or practices that companies should put in place uh, was part of what we did, benchmarking, best practices, training for organizations. Um, and one of the pieces that I think um, has been really important in the evolution of the work of Catalyst was the engagement of men in the conversation. We, I, I, sorry, I they'll use the word we, um, but Catalyst created a, a program called Men Advocating Real Change, uh, Mark, and, MARC. Um, and I think that was really important because it was the first time really that organizations were saying, the fight for gender equality and gender equity is not something that should be done by, for, and led only by women. Men need to be fully engaged as partners in this exercise. And so MARC became a platform to really bring men into the conversation in a way that wasn't uh, about blaming men. It's your fault that we're underrepresented or that women are underrepresented. Is to say, we need to do this together that's the purpose of our work and the best way forward. And, uh, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of the leadership that Catalyst has played in, in really advancing that philosophy um, and uh, conversation.
0: Yeah, that's an an important piece is, is exactly that engaging both sides, or, or every side of, of, of the conversation, ensuring all constituents are are part of it, so that you can have a, a a wholesome, you know, kind of conversation and and see all points. Um, And I'm curious, like, you know, for myself, I'm I'm male, you know, late 20s in a, in a workplace. What are some outside of, you know, the, the, the simple, maybe not so simple, but the obvious, or once again, maybe not so obvious uh, things that you can do, like, um, you know, have a position open for you know, equal opportunity for for everyone, and 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 things of that nature. What are some tactics or some some things that you recommend to um, to men uh, in terms of uh, providing and promoting an an equitable workplace um, for all? Is that part of the conversation as well? And if so, what are some tactics yeah. that you you'd recommend? For sure,
1: it is. I mean. Um, these are some simple things, but, you know, you use your example, Evan, being a young man in your workplace. Um, I would say the same thing uh, to you about a number of different, um, groups of colleagues that you might be working with, but when you're sitting in a room and someone says something that is clearly sexist, call it out, like, just say, hey man, that is not on, Um, that's wrong and here's why. Um, In the same way that I would say and ask you to do the same if you heard someone make a comment that was homophobic or racist, play use your voice and use the influence and privilege that you have in that setting to not let those kinds of things pass because I assure you there is a woman sitting nearby who um, is feeling that and and is experiencing the kind of death by a thousand cuts that happens when you face those kinds of microaggressions uh, kind of every day. So call it out. Recognize that that women's advancement is not a zero-sum game. It is not a woman advancing means that you are losing out the job is not yours that she's taken. Um, this is about all of us together, and there are plenty of opportunities. And so, again, going into it with that open mindset that um, this is about creating a fair and equal opportunity for everyone, it does require acknowledging the privilege that you've had. Um, That's the that the system has predominantly in business been led by men in leadership positions. It is a natural thing for people to gravitate to those who are like them. That carries with it advantages for um, men in workplaces. Let's get to an equal place and and recognize that we want to create fair opportunities for everyone. And particularly, you know, I, I would say in this moment, important moment that we're living in the world, recognizing that that's uh, particularly true for the BIPOC community that I referenced earlier, um, and recognizing, you know, something that Catalyst has spent a lot of time looking at, that the intersection of gender and race um, means that it's often particularly challenging for women of color in workplaces
0: I love that um, that, ta- that uh, granular kind of tactic to, to call it out, right? Like everyone's been there. Everyone knows that feeling in the pit of your stomach. You get a little sweaty. You're like, ooh, this is a bit awkward. And it's acting on that where normally you've just pushed it down. And I think that's part of it is that most of us have become very, very good and, and accustomed to pushing those feelings down. Uh, and now it's it's a it's a function of of acting on that. So I, I, I certainly uh, appreciate that.
1: Well, and the and and thanks, and Evan. The acting on that is you know what I would encourage people to think about is what is the woman who is sitting in that room or is listening to or hearing that comment? What is that causing her to feel? And. Um, She may not feel that she can say anything in that moment, but you adding your voice is really powerful and changes completely how that workplace is experienced by her. So, again, that may seem like a little thing, but it's really, really important. And then, of course, for anyone who is a Um, in the position of being a hiring manager or going through a process of recruiting for positions. Bring a lot of intentionality to how you go about that process. Make sure that position descriptions don't unintentionally include biased language that feed into stereotypes of uh, male versus female behaviors or characteristics. Ensure you have diverse hiring panels. Ensure that you require diverse slates of candidates who are coming forward for positions. All of those things can really make a difference.
0: Those are fantastic, um, fantastic ideas and and recommendations. And I think um, you know something that we should all be we should all be thinking about and being mindful of and instituting in our organizations. Um, So thank you, thank you for that. Now, switching gears a bit here. that I, you and I are connected in a way that um, you might not recognize, but uh, you you worked on the Meech Lake and the Charlottetown Accord in your early days in your in your law uh, mm-hmm. career as a lawyer, um, and and I'm from Quebec, so those are obviously two two moments in you know call it constitutional law or just broadly Canadian politics that that have had a big impact on my life, um, and I'm and and I'm also using this as a, a way to kind of highlight the various places you've been in your career. And I know that I'm not doing the timeline justice because I'm going all over the place. So <laughs> forgive me, uh, but but certainly impressive. And I'm, I'm curious to hear about, uh, you know, your time spent on on those two meaningful pieces of legislature and then also uh, how that had shifted your career and, and impacted your lens and view.
1: Oh, wow. Um, yeah, you've, you've uh, done your homework uh, here, Evan. Um so, uh, one, I'm not a lawyer, um, but my training um, in uh, political science certainly helped me. Um, that work was some of the most meaningful work that I've done. Um, and I'll say a little bit more about that in a second. Um, but to tell you a bit about how I got there, um, as a high school student, I was probably in 10th grade, um, I would say, certainly in high school, can't remember exactly which year. Um, I remember watching the patriation reference when the Supreme Court of Canada for the first time televised um, their decision in that case. And, And I was particularly struck and kind of really fascinated by that process. And and of course, it's another link to the catalyst part of my work during that whole patriation reference um, and that fight for the Charter of Rights and Freedom in the early 80s. Again, I was a young um, high school student. I was really struck by the women who stepped forward and argued for and, and fought for equality rights to be included in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So somehow in that... Um I kind of set off on a path believing that I would be a constitutional lawyer. That's what I expected to do. And so when I started both my undergraduate and then graduate degrees, um, took courses in constitutional law, um, studied you know, these federal provincial relations, et cetera. And by the time I was in university, um, Meech Lake had been proposed, I wrote my master's thesis on constitutional change of the Meech Lake Accord, and, um, and as a graduate student, appeared before the Ontario Select Committee that was examining Meech. So, following the Charlottetown process, you know, I had the opportunity during that to, to work with some of the senior executives in the Government of Ontario. and. That included um, the person who was then the deputy secretary of cabinet. His name was Michael Mendelson. That led to me getting a job in the cabinet office where I was a senior policy advisor, and from there had the opportunity to be, you know, working on policy issues, including employment equity anti-racism, some other issues, again, that have been really important and, and that I've drawn on as I've gone through other opportunities and different roles in my career. So it's funny how lots of things start to connect and intersect in different ways that you really don't expect or understand at the time um, and how, again, different people you Meet and cross paths with you. You reconnect with in, in different uh, in different ways at at other points.
0: Absolutely, and it rem- always reminds me of that uh, Steve Jobs commencement speech where he speaks about, you know, you, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect the dots looking back. And and yours really seem to connect in in a meaningful way through, I would say, a thread of, of inclusion through. You know your time working on 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 the Meech Lake in Charlottetown, including you know Quebec within the Canadian Constitution, and then your time at at Catalyst, obviously uh, an incredibly inclusive program and 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 policy that you're pushing forward there. And now I, I'm I'm excited to hear about you know what what it is that you're focused on at CMH. We've put up we put that aside a, a few times now at various points in the conversation. But I do want to to hear about some of the things that that are important to you and and to CAMH right now.
1: Thanks. Um, you know, it's interesting, I, and uh, a lot of people when I you know announced that I was leaving Catalyst and joining CAMH Foundation, many people said to me, "I tell me how you're making that transition from gender equality, workplace inclusion to mental health." Um, And I actually, Evan, to your comment, see it as another extension of that same kind of um, commitment to inclusion, because to me, at the very core of what CAMH does, this is about our work is about ensuring that every human being has the ability to live up to their full potential And that means getting access to the quality care and treatment they deserve. That means not living with stigma. That means not living with the fear of being open and talking about and seeking and asking for the help that they need. We cannot build and talk about having an inclusive country if we have entire segments of the population who continue to be unable to access the care that they need or are so deeply stigmatized that they cannot get the help that they um, require. And so I see this as a logical extension of that kind of commitment to capitalizing on the potential of every single person. Um, If we can do that as a society, then we've done something really important. And I'm like many Canadians, I have had friends and family members, people in my close circle that have struggled with mental health and addictions. Um, I have seen those who have dealt with suicide in their families, the stigma that they have felt, and so I'm hoping that in this role that I can make a difference for some of those people, again, by securing and inspiring the philanthropic support that will allow the hospital to do its important work, but also doing some important work around raising awareness, busting stigma. So in fact, um, we've recently launched a campaign around suicide and the campaign Not Suicide, Not Today is, I think, tackling one of the the most stigmatized issues related to uh, mental illness, where there is such fear and, um, I guess, shame that too many people feel about uh, suicide that they will not and cannot talk about it. And we're hoping to really offer a message of hope and help Um, by raising the conversation. It's a difficult one to have, but it's a necessary one to have, given the statistics that show us how many people die by suicide every year in this country and around the world. Um, I think most people would be surprised to know that globally 800,000 people annually die by suicide. Every um, 4,000 Canadians a year, every 40 seconds, someone in the world dies by suicide. And so that's an example of where I think if we can play a role in opening up a conversation, I think Canada's ready to have it. I think CAMH has earned the right and the responsibility to take a leadership role in this really important topic, and I'm I'm really really proud of the sensitivity um, that the campaign has taken to uh, a pretty difficult
0: issue. That's incredible. No, it 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 almost seems like uh, Deborah that your career arc has and your career path has just been um, you've been put in roles where you're 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 the voice to lead difficult conversations. And, and this is, is no, no different than any of your previous positions, to your, to your point on kind of making the leap, especially with respect to this new program that, that CAMH is, is launching around suicide. Um, because like you said, it, it is you know, CAMH's uh, right and responsibility. Uh, they have earned the right and now they've been bestowed the responsibility to have that conversation and to lead that conversation around Canada um, as a trusted, you know, brand and voice uh, in in the in the mental health space.
1: Yeah, I, I appreciate that, Evan. And, and again, if you think about some of the data, I, I referred to some of the you know, overarching statistics. Um, but again, if you look at some of the most vulnerable populations in terms of suicide, First Nations youth die by suicide five to six times more often than non-Aboriginal youth. A recent study um, that we've done looking at LGBTQ2S, uh, youth homelessness, 33% of participants had attempted suicide in the past year. Um, there are marginalized populations where, the, as I say, the rates of suicide are even greater. And so, again, if I bring that lens to it of how do we shine a light and support and draw awareness and attention to really important issues and what a difference that can make in someone's life when really what we're doing is kind of going back to what I said earlier, we're saying, we see you. And when you are seen um, and know that someone's in your corner and cares and is there to help whether, as I said earlier, it's someone helping you as a mentor or sponsor in your career, or in this case, it's someone extending a hand to say, you're not alone, we see you, there's help available. Um, I, I just I think that's incredibly powerful and important uh, work and um, I just feel you know, really proud of what H is doing here.
0: As you as you should, um, and undoubtedly. And, and let me let me um, kind of poke at that for a second. Given you know, given your background and given where you you came from at the the aforementioned gravel road, um in, in small town Nova Scotia, Glencoe Station, how how are you and the broader kind of CMH platform thinking about bringing you know mental health services and and these type of of resources to remote locations cuz you know marginalized communities can can be obviously within a city center but also geographically marginalized by just by nature of where they are and so how how are they getting access to to these types of resources
1: yeah really wonderful question i mean it's been interesting too if you layer on top of that what we've all experienced during the pandemic and The shutdowns and isolation, and so on. So, CAMH has really um, significantly invested in um, remote or digital access, online access to um, uh, for patients to their treatment. So, increased uh, tele mental mental health visits at CAMH increased by seven hundred and fifty percent from where where we were prior to the pandemic to Um, where the hospital is today. Also significant platforms in providing support, for example, to um, indigenous communities um, across the province. Um, And so again, using technology, using expertise, forming relationships, um, playing that broader role um, to ensure that there is access to different communities. It's also included things like developing culturally adapted um, uh, treatments for different communities, again, recognizing that, um, bringing that lens of sensitivity to uh, different cultural communities and what, uh, what might be important and necessary for them to both um, access and uh, benefit from treatment. So lots. Um, That's a really big piece. It, it, it really is. And lots of intentionality in that, because, again, there's a recognition, um, you know, and I, my my colleagues at the hospital would say, you know, we're not there yet and we don't have it all right. But there is clearly a recognition, understanding and commitment to um, ensuring that different communities are um, getting the kind of support that they need, recognizing that some of these issues of stigma etc are different and experienced differently in different communities and so different approaches are necessary
0: yeah it can't be a one-size-fits-all uh, approach it, it, it won't work it's it's not too dissimilar from you know having having a mentor that kind of looks and 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 feels like you what was the the line that you said before if i can't see it or right. something if that- you can't
1: see it you can't be it
0: Right, and so so having you know someone um you know who can who can help you on or who can provide resources and support on the mental health side who who looks like you, so to speak is is such a massive massive part of of, of recovery and, and and getting there and being vulnerable enough to open up and to feel understood and to feel heard and and so that's a, a really important piece of it.
1: Yeah. And if you if you have a chance to to see and experience some of the of the not today campaign, you will see in the faces and voices that we've included in this campaign, um, a group of people that look like Canada. Um, There's been a lot, again, of intentionality um, and care paid to ensuring that diverse voices, perspectives, experiences are represented so that people see themselves um, in this work. And and I just, as I said, I think that that's really critical. If, if we can do something where someone feels seen um, and that they're not alone, um, I think we can make a really important difference in someone's life.
0: Beautifully put, and with you at the helm of the Cambridge Foundation, Deborah, I feel confident that uh, uh, a change in, in in lives will will ultimately happen. Um, thank you so much for for your time here. This has been such a uh, an illuminating conversation on on not only the work that's being done by CAMH in this space, but also that's being done broadly. So thank you uh, for for sharing your insights and, and input on all that.
1: It's been my pleasure to join you today. Thank you for the opportunity.
0: And there you have it. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Deb Gillis. For more information on CAMH and the work that they do, please visit www.camh.ca This episode was produced by Eugene McCashew and I am your host Evan Saquera. If you like this episode and want to support the Capitalize for Kids podcast, please subscribe to our channel, share the episode and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn uh, for updates on upcoming episodes. And if you'd like to learn more about Capitalize for Kids and the work that we do in supporting children's mental health, please visit our website at www.capitalizeforkids.org.